Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, you may find the passage on page 960. Again, today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. Please join me in standing as we honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word that sometimes teaches things that are strange to our ears, things that don't sit well with us, things that don't make sense. We know, Lord, in spite of that, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path, and so we ask that you, by your spirit, would give insight into this difficult passage. And would you give us a greater sense of your presence, Lord, as we hear from your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every now and then we will come across a passage in the Bible and you read it and you are just like, what did that say? You just heard Lexi read that. You, if that was the first time you ever heard that, you, you might have just like done a double take like, what did she say? How in the world did that make it into the Bible? Today's passage is one of those kinds of passages. 
Um, it's one of those places where if you're new to Christianity or you're kind of um, on the outside looking in, you're like, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. I mean, that's the kind of reason why I'm not going to be involved with this kind of religion. I mean, just listen to what it says about women. I mean, just on a plain reading of this text, you would be reasonably justified to think that the Bible is clearly backward, that this just goes to show how Christians treat women like dirt. And you can walk away concluding that the New Testament and the way it conceives men and women is just tilted way too much towards patriarchy, male patriarchy, gender inequality, that this just goes to show how Christianity can't be trusted because it treats the way it treats women reeks of male chauvinism. But the problem is, if you're a Christian, we're called to accept the whole counsel of the Word of God. We can't be like Thomas Jefferson once did, take a pair of scissors and just cut out all the spots in the Bible you don't agree with, or that you do cut out all the spots in the Bible where um, it makes more sense to you and paste that into your own Bible. If you don't know that he did that, there's called, something called the Jefferson Bible, where you literally mix and match what makes sense to you so that in the end you have a Bible that's perfectly to your own liking. That's, we, can't, we can't do that. We can't do that. And so when you come across a passage like this and you are just wondering, what do you do with a passage like this? The first instinct that I hope you have is, I got to figure out what this means. As opposed to, this can't be something we need to believe in. This is, this is for another day, another age. Well, this passage sticks out like a sore thumb because it goes against not just our cultural sensibilities of today, but it can just feel embarrassing to admit that this is actually in the Bible, the very word of God that we hold up as central and authoritative for us Christians. But all this just goes to show that when it comes to reading Scripture, context matters. Because if you don't interpret this passage carefully and correctly, you could end up with some awfully misguided uh, applications of what this text actually says and what we're supposed to do when we come together for a worship gathering. And in this context, this tricky little passage lies in the middle of a a broader series of teachings on the spiritual gifts, and that's important. It lies in a broader series of teachings on what we do as we gather together as a corporate body, worshiping God together, much like what we're doing right now. And so here in context, we see the Apostle Paul laying out some specific guidelines that Christians are to do as we gather for worship and how to exercise spiritual gifts, things to do, things not to do. And what I want us to wrestle with in our time together is this. Why do we have to be so bound by rules and restrictions when those rules and restrictions can sometimes seem so stifling to spontaneity or or even so oppressive to women? In other words, why, why can't we just do what we think is best, what makes sense to us when we gather like this for corporate worship? And I want to point out three things that I see in this text to help us think through this. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
We're going to start in verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. My first point is this. The way we worship, the way we gather for worship must reflect the God we worship. The way we gather for worship must reflect the God we worship. Last week, Jason, Pastor Jason went over the first part of this chapter, and he taught about the spiritual gifts, particularly the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy. He taught about the importance of intelligible worship, as well as the power of evangelistic worship. And in verses 26 to the first part of verse 33, Paul moves on to point out the centrality of orderly worship. So I want you to look down at verse 26 with me. I'm going to read. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, just to clarify, the the word revelation here is referring to the gift of prophecy, where something spontaneously comes to mind through the Spirit, and when it's expressed in a known language, other people around you are encouraged, built up, and edified. And this isn't an exhaustive list that Paul's giving you. It doesn't seem like an exhaustive list. It's not like Paul's just saying, these are the only things that can take place in a worship service. But he is trying to cast a vision for the overall environment of what a worship service is supposed to feel like, be like, and look like. So look down at verse 26, the second part of it. It says, let all things be done for building up. Let all things be done for building up. And you think about it, Christ died for his church. He laid down his life for his church. And just like in Ephesians 5, where husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and how Christ nourishes his church, and husbands ought to nourish and cherish their wives, Christ has given spiritual gifts to members of his body. And one of the ways he nourishes his body is by the use of spiritual gifts among the body for the sake of the body. And so if you think about it, Christ died for the church to bring local churches like this together so that spiritual gifts could be exercised. And one of the ways he nurtures the very body he died for is that these spiritual gifts are exercised for the building up of each other. So no matter what, God wants to make sure that anything and everything that takes place in a worship service for his glory ends up actually building up his people. That's the point. Which makes you wonder what other priorities were taking place instead. Why did Paul feel such a need to emphasize the building up of believers, not only here in this passage, but other parts of this letter as well? Just listen to what he writes. To each is given the manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. 1 Corinthians 14, 3. So with yourselves strive, uh, for so with yourselves since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. I think what Paul was fighting here was, as he wrote to the Corinthians regarding spiritual gifts in worship gatherings, was this underlying tendency we all can have 
to take the gifts that God's blessed us with to build up not the church, but our own reputations, to feed our own egos, and to steal glory for ourselves. You see, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But even low and despised people like us, when we get endowed by supernatural gifts and abilities, because of the remaining sin in us, can turn the idea of receiving spiritual gifts into an opportunity to demonstrate just how gifted we really are. We turn the church into one gigantic talent show. Those who have a hymn to sing, who are gifted not just in a way of, hey, I can keep a pitch, I can sing in pitch, but you sing well, you sing beautifully. Those who have a lesson to bring, not just that, but you have a way with words that can move people, that can speak to people's souls. Those who have the ability to bring a revelation from the Spirit that can convict people in their hearts. Those with the Spirit-given ability to speak in a language they didn't know before or to interpret those languages on the spot. All these people would do well to express their gifts with complete humility. Because it's not about them. It's not about them. It's about blessing others. It's about building others. It's about blessing others and benefiting others. But the question is how? Look down at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is, is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. You see, there's a kind of humility that's exercised and expressed when people come together to worship God together. When you take turns, simple as that, when you take turns. In these early church gatherings, believers were to take turns if they spoke in tongues. It wasn't a wild circus. There was a limit to the number of people who could speak at any given time. Speak in tongues, that is. And if there wasn't anyone to interpret, then people were prohibited from speaking in tongues in that public space in a worship gathering. They were to keep silent in church and speak to themselves and to God. There were rules for how prophets were to handle themselves in gatherings. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. They were to humble themselves enough to stop if someone had a revelation somewhere else who, who was sitting there. They were to just stop and yield to them. For as verse 32 says, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Which means, as one commentator puts it, the urge to prophesy is subject to the prophet. The impulse to speak may still be present, but the speaker can restrain those impulses and must yield the floor to another who receives a revelation. So, so these, these, are, these are clear rules, guidelines, restrictions, limitations on what is and isn't supposed to take place when the church gathers for worship. And why? Why should the church subject 
itself to all these rules and restrictions instead of just giving themselves to a freer expression of spontaneity. I mean, doesn't it just feel more right to allow freedom of just how you feel, the spirit leading, and spontaneity, just guide our worship services no matter where that takes us? And I'm not trying to say that there isn't, a, isn't room for things that are unplanned or spont- spontaneous in a worship gathering. But there is something to be said about how Scripture is so clear here that there ought to be order and an overall coherence to the gathering of worshiping believers. Why? Because the way we gather for worship must reflect the God we worship. Look down at verse 33 with me. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You see, the disorder in Corinth was, as one commentator puts it, not attributable to the workings of the Holy Spirit, but to narcissistic exhibitionism, disdain for others with lesser gifts, and disregard for the common good. Another commentator on this passage tells us that what we need to see here is that the church in Corinth was operating more like pagan cults, whose worship was characterized by frenzy and disorder. He says that the the character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. The Corinthians must therefore cease worship, cease worship that reflects the pagan deities more than the God whom they have come to know through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a God of peace, a God of order. He's thoughtful in the way he sovereignly plans and purposes things to take place throughout the history of the world. So making sure that our worship gatherings are intelligible and orderly helps to ensure that the spiritual gifts being exercised not only build up the church, but reflect the orderly nature of the God we worship. If you've been worshiping with us some time now here at HCC, um, at Houston Chinese Church, you, you can see this principle reflected in how these services are ordered from week to week. I mean, it's the same general format with some changes now and then. Um, you've, you've got the welcome. You've got the call to worship. We'll sing some songs, have a confession followed by um, an assurance of pardon. There's an offertory with another song. There's a pastoral prayer, scripture reading. You've got the sermon, followed by another song or two. And once a month, like we'll do later this morning, we take communion. And then there's benediction, followed by our congregation singing the doxology together. It's, it's a very similar order from week to week. And the order of service that we have provides just that, order. And what I want you to see here is that there's biblical reason to shape our services in an orderly way like, like you experience week in and week out. So in some, some, some sense, I'm really preaching to the choir. I don't have to preach through this text to make you realize that we're already carrying out the principles of, you know, this orderly worship gathering by the grace of God. But I want you to take away, what I want you to take away from this portion is, is simply to know why we do what we do. I mean, some of you from time to time might feel like these services are just too uptight. I mean, it's just so structured. I mean, there's just no room for spontaneity. I mean, I'm not trying to say that the way we do things here at HCC is the only way things can be done. Certainly, in, 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 the, in the world of 
and, and under the principles of orderly worship, there's certainly many different ways that churches can do things. But, but maybe the invitation here is to pray that these gatherings would not only reflect the worship of the, the God we worship and how he is orderly in nature, but that these gatherings would continue to be a place where the spirit is at work, where people are built up, where the discouraged find comfort and encouragement, where the spiritually weak are strengthened. It's all mixed in to what God's vision for our worship gatherings ought to be like. And I don't want to just call you guys to pray and put it off till later today because that might mean next week or never. So I, wanna, I, I don't want to miss this opportunity. And so actually before I move on to my next point, I want to give us a minute or two right now right where you are to pray for these things. And, and feel free to pray for one or two people next to you. Again, pray for our worship gatherings to reflect God's orderly nature. Pray that the Spirit would be at work among us, that, that the people that come to gather and worship would be built up, that the discouraged would be encouraged and comforted, and that those who are spiritually weak would be strengthened. So we just spend a minute or two praying for that together, and I'll move on. Amen. Amen. So why should we feel bound by all these rules and restrictions and heed the principles of orderly worship when it can just seem so stifling? First, the way we gather for worship must reflect the God we worship. And that's a God of peace and order and not confusion. But second, the way we gather for worship must reflect God's design for men and women. Okay, so now the hard part. How are we going to figure out how to think about this next section, right? What do we do with a passage like this that Lexi just read? Look down at the second part of verse 33 with me. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. 
If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I know for some of you, this might be the first time you've come across a passage like this in the Bible. And you're wondering, what does this mean? Um, How did these verses get into this book? And, And they just seem so oppressive, so wrong, so unfair towards women. So how do, we, how do we handle a text like this? Well, there are a number of ways that people have tried to explain what these words mean, what the meaning of this passage is. And what I want to do for this next section is just to give you a couple of interpretations. There's a lot of different interpretations. I'm going to give you a couple, spare you all the details. I'll give you a couple of interpretations that I kind of find unconvincing. And I want to follow that by an interpretation that I think is more likely, okay? So, so I'll be drawing from what I've learned from three different Bible scholars, D.A. Carson, David Garland, and Wayne Grudem, as I go through this. So just give, giving credit where credit's due. So one way people have tried to explain this um, is to just say verses 34 and 35 are simply Paul's rewording of what some Corinthians, who are kind of more male traditionalists, believed in. These are the kinds of people in the Corinthian church who simply wanted to silence all the women in the church. And so when you read that women should keep silent in the churches and that they're not permitted to speak, proponents of this view would say that, well, these, these things aren't really what Paul believed. And he, these things aren't really what Paul expected churches to believe. And he was just rewording, he was just summarizing what other people believed. Now, the problem with this interpretation is that nowhere else in the letter to the Corinthians do we see that Corinthian Christians actually believe something like this. So to me, this view remains unconvincing. Another common position is to argue that, well, this passage is really directly aimed at a very specific church in Corinth. It's specifically for the church in Corinth. And what was happening in the church in Corinth was that the women in particular were very rowdy. They, they were unruly. And so Paul wrote these words p- to provide specific guidance for that church. Which means that, you know, he wanted to get things in order for the church in Corinth. So this means that these words about women being silent in the churches or that they aren't permitted to speak wouldn't apply to any other church. And so we can rest assured that's not for us today. But, This view fails to keep in mind that Paul was writing about something that was broadly applicable. Just look down at the second half of verse 33 with me. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. So the fact that Paul is referring to churches in the plural makes this interpretation I've been telling you about that he was only trying to pinpoint a problem in the church in Corinth Very unlikely. And besides, we find no place in the letter to the Corinthians that would make us think that Corinthian women in particular were disruptive. So, again, this view, this view remains unconvincing. So is there another way to think about this passage that that would make more sense? I think there is. And like I mentioned earlier, context matters. Context matters here because if you read this passage in isolation, you can arrive at some very misguided interpretations and misapplications. 
It's important to recognize this passage on women in the church finds itself right in the middle of a larger passage on how to properly exercise spiritual gifts, particularly when the church comes together to gather for worship. There's nothing scripturally uh, that makes us think that women couldn't speak in tongues or interpret tongues while in those early church gatherings. There's also the situation back in chapter 11 of the same letter where wives were able to pray and prophesy within a worship gathering. So these statements here that we read in chapter 14 about women keeping silent and not being permitted to speak clearly can't mean that women are prohibited from speaking at all in worship gatherings. And if we look at the immediate context, there's actually a close connection between this passage on women and what Paul writes directly before on his guidance for prophecies. So I want you to look back at verse 29 with me. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. And what I think is the best way to interpret this tough passage on women is to understand that verses 30 through the first part of verse 33 give further guidance to the expression of prophecies. Basically, that those giving prophecies ought to give way to others whenever the Spirit gives a revelation to someone else in the gathering. But then, the second part of verse 33 through verse 36 gives further guidance on the evaluation of prophecies. What Paul's trying to say here is that when it comes to weighing what others have said and prophesied, women should keep silent in the churches. Paul isn't saying that women have to be completely silent whenever they show up in a worship gathering. You can see this as it's something similar to the way he, he spoke about people who speak in tongues but had no one to interpret. He tells that group of people to keep silent in church. This can't possibly mean that these same tongue speakers um, had to be completely silent the rest of the worship gathering um, and that they couldn't participate in other ways like singing or praying in a known language. Does that make sense? This interpretation of this passage could work even if you took the position that what was happening in the weighing of these prophecies was not simply just seeing if these prophecies were aligned with Scripture or not, but actually whether or not these were true or false prophets. I think it could still make sense. The women were, were restricted in this case. Paul's restricting women the point is that Paul's restricting women in the church from the practice of evaluating what comes out of a prophet's mouth. That's, that's the point. He's trying to restrict just that specific situation of women evaluating, of judging prophecies. That was something for the men. Now I realize this still begs the question, why are there even differences between what men and women can do and can't do when churches gather together? And Paul goes on to answer that question in verse 34. Look down there with me. He says, the, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. When Paul talks about the law here, he's most likely referring to creation order that we see in Genesis 2, where the Bible talks about how God first made man, Adam, when he created the world, and when he couldn't find a helper fit for him, God made woman, who was Eve, from one of Adam's ribs and brought her to the man. 
D.A. Carson explains this further, Paul explains, or Paul understands this creation order that woman is to be subject to man, or at least that wife is to be subject to husband, In the context of the Corinthian weighing of prophecies, such submission could not be preserved if the wives participated. The first husband who uttered a prophecy would precipitate the problem. And in verse 35, when Paul says that if there's anything that women desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, he's likely referring to a situation where wives are openly questioning, kind of challenging prophecies that are being given during worship gatherings. That's the kind of situation he's referring to. And so, these wives were called to speak up about those types of questions when they're at home with their husbands. Many of you know that I serve as the church planting resident here at Houston Chinese Church and trying to get this church plant called Ethnos Church up and running. We've been recruiting since last September. This has been a long time, and um, thank God we are now moving into this next season. This afternoon, we're going to move into a season where we're going to develop the team. Um, and so that's, that's been exciting. But one of, the things that, one of the things that has come up multiple times as I've been recruiting, especially basically outside of HCC, as I've been meeting people to try to recruit people for the team, has actually been this issue of the role of women in the church. So I, I remember there, there, there's one woman that we're recruiting, and she has her seminary degree, and she has this love for teaching. She wants to preach. She has a desire to preach. And our church plant, yes, we, we view, we will view the equality of men and women, that men and women have equal value, worth, and dignity, but at the same time, there's a God-given design for how men and women function in the home and in the church. So I had to be upfront with her that, you know, with our church, we're not going to have women preaching in our services. And so later, um, she responds back and has decided uh, not to join us. And, and the, main reason, the major reason was because she just really desired preaching. And so, there, you know, we, we, we believe um, as we're thinking through this, that in 1 Timothy 2, women aren't to teach or to exercise authority over man. And I interpret that to, as taking place in an assembly of both men and women gathered for corporate worship, much like the situation we are, we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. So, it may not be the case in this congregation, and maybe there are some here who think differently, but the role of women in churches is a controversial issue, if you haven't figured that out. It's an issue that churches are really going to have to make some hard but practical decisions about how they're going to run things, how they view scripture, and how they're actually going to do things from week to week. And I just want to say that I do think this is an area that fellow believers can legitimately disagree with each other about, but each church is going to have to decide where it stands. As you think about these things, I want to challenge you to continue to make Scripture your final authority. Not, not the culture around us, not what you think makes most sense to you, but Scripture. Let Scripture define how you feel about hard passages like this. 
If this is a topic that you have questions about, that you're wanting to know more about, I want you to write down the name of this book. And I want you to take a look through it. It's called Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. It's written by Wayne Grudem. And I want to also invite you to talk with any of the pastors here at this church or myself um, if you want to explore more about this issue. We'll leave it at that. So why do we have to be so bound by rules and restrictions in our worship gatherings when those very rules and restrictions seem to stifle spontaneity and can be seemingly oppressive to women? First, the way we gather for worship must reflect the God we worship. And second, the way we gather for worship must reflect God's good design for men and women. And third, the way we gather for worship must reflect our submission to God. Look down at verse 36 with me. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? These are rhetorical questions, and it seems as though Paul's challenging any inclination in the Corinthian Christians to resist the commands and exhortations that he's giving to them. He challenges them by somewhat sarcastically asking if God's word originated from them or if God's word um, reached only them apart from anywhere, anyone else in the world. And clearly the answer to these two questions is a resounding no. The point here is that God's word is for all the people of God applicable for every, assembled, every assembly of gathered saints. The Corinthians did not exist in an isolated bubble. And because of that, they should be willing to submit to, comply with, live according to the guidelines given above for the sake of honoring God through an orderly worship. Take a look at verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. What Paul's saying here is not optional. It's not something he puts in some suggestion box for like some friendly suggestions on how to make service better. To neglect these commands would be a serious problem in the eyes of God. The reason, we do the, the reason we do things the way we do in our worship gathering should ultimately be out of a desire to the best of our ability to worship God in the way that he thinks best. Not because we think it's going to attract more people to our church. Not because we think it's going to make more sense in light of cultural sensibilities of our day. And definitely not because it suits our tastes and preferences better. Brothers and sisters, the way we gather for worship must reflect our submission to God. And the way we submit to God in worship is to make sure that we, what we do together is aligned with Scripture. As Paul wraps up his teachings on the spiritual gifts, he gives us a vision for how worship gatherings of the beloved saints of Christ ought to be. And in the end, we find that the way we gather for worship must reflect the God we worship. And that's a God of peace and order and not confusion. 
we find that the way we gather for worship must reflect God's good design for men and women and not just what we think best or what the culture around us dictates. And we find that the way we gather for worship must reflect our submission to God because ultimately he has the right to govern how we worship him. May all things that are done here in this worship gathering at HEC from week to week be done so that each of us are built up and encouraged. And may all things be done in this worship gathering in a way that leads to order and not confusion so that our worship would truly reflect the God we worship. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would continue to be glorified through this church. I ask that these worship gatherings that take place from week after week would be times where our souls are refreshed by the Spirit of God and when we feel nurtured by your word. So would you lead us to deeper levels of communion and joy and satisfaction in you? We love you. We worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.